Alright, I'm a diva and have a lot of things going on up here. Um, hey guys, welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Chris Horn. Uh, a special welcome to you tonight if you're new, if you've never been here. Uh, I would love to get to know you. I'm the campus minister. So again, that means my job is to hang out with you um, and to be your pastor. So I would love to get to know you. Uh, especially welcome. I know it's midterms, so uh, uh, thanks for coming out. Hopefully this is a little bit of a respite um, from all of your studies. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. So it's in the Old Testament. Psalms is a big part, and then it's a little bit after that. Isaiah, chapter 6. Um, I'm kind of new here. Uh, we've lived here since the summer. Um, but one of my favorite things so far about being uh, with you guys every day is that it's kind of uncool at App um, to like be going to school to get a job to like make a lot of money and like get a big house and retire early. Um, that means you're like a nerd at App. Um, if that's what you want to do, that's lame, right? Uh, because you know what a lot of people want to do is get a job that's like a world-changing job, you know, like social work or go out in the mission field, or something that's really going to change and affect lives. Um, and, and, uh, and I really like that. It's really neat. It makes for a really fun um, environment. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, everyone's doing it now, even. People are working at camps. People are going abroad and all that. Uh, and so it's wonderful to be around you. Uh, you guys have big perspectives on the world and big aspirations, and that's really fun. Um, but regardless of your career... Uh, when you go into it, you have to have certain qualifications, right? And um, sometimes you have to have academic qualifications. But to go into the kind of world-changing jobs that I know a lot of you guys want to go into, international justice, all these kinds of things, um, people are typically looking for personal character qualifications. Um, like they want to find a well-rounded individual. So um, in addition to having an undergraduate and graduate degree, Right. Often you have to teach Pilates, uh, you know, to um, people that are amputees, you know, and uh, tutor like Moroccan kids, um, you know, while you're on your breaks from like weeding beds at a local farm. You know, uh, if you want the kind of job uh, today, you have to have this sort of merit-based full person qualifications, and uh, don't even bother applying if you haven't traveled to Africa or South America at least three times. Um, all jobs have qualifications um, and if you're here and you're a Christian tonight regardless of what you want to do you probably are thinking I want to serve God whether it's just being a mom or uh, working as a teacher or working uh, in law or whatever uh, you say I, I want to serve God in some capacity but what are God's qualifications for serving him have you ever thought about that uh, what is God looking for on your resume, so to speak, uh, to serve him? And tonight we're going to see uh, uh, this story of Isaiah, and he has this vision of the Lord. And God is asking for someone to go out and represent him in the world. And we've been looking at these questions that God asks, and God tonight is asking, whom shall I send? Who will go? Uh, what kind of person is God looking for? Uh, read with me, if you will. I think it's on the screen, hopefully. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 13. Uh, listen, this is the word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. 
With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing as we look at it together. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, As we say so often, uh, it's been read and we've heard it, and that's enough for you to do what you will with it. Um, But Lord, because you are gracious, would you attend now to the teaching of it? Would you bless that, uh, Lord, and teach us what it means to follow you, our King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you grew up in the church uh, or you've ever joined a church, you may be familiar with uh, a new members class. Maybe you've taken a new members class. Maybe you've taught a new members class. Um, uh, Or it's sometimes called an inquirer's class. You know, a classic churchy term for something that no one knows what that quite is. Am I an inquirer? I have no idea. Uh, one time I was in an inquirer's class and, uh, in Philadelphia, and uh, I was in the class, and this guy was teaching it, right? And he asked this question, what is the form of government in the church? And I, being Presbyterian, this is a Presbyterian learning moment. Uh, this is a Presbyterian church, and so I'm a Presbyterian. And we believe that the church should be run by these representative people that the congregation votes on, called elders and deacons and pastors, So I raised my hand very confidently and said, the church is a representative democracy. And he said, false. The church is an absolute monarchy. God is the king of the church. And that kind of hurt my feelings. uh, Because nobody likes someone that asks trick questions. Uh, But he was right. The church, and indeed the whole world, is an absolute monarchy. Um... And in a monarchy, uh, the king doesn't just make political decisions, right? He makes all the decisions. Like the claw, you know, the claw sees all. The claw knows all. The claw determines who will go and who will stay. Uh, The king in a monarchy determines every aspect of your life. Uh, He determines what you might do for a living, how much money you will make, whether or not you go to war. Uh, and whether or not you, uh, where you live and all these things. The king controls it 
all. And in this text, Isaiah sees the Lord and he's sitting on a throne. He's enthroned over the whole world. He is the king. The Lord is the king, the Lord of heaven and earth. So let's walk through this vision. And uh, I want to see three things about the king. And that's this. Again, here is the outline uh, for those of you that write it down. The king is holy. The king is full of grace. And the king is calling. The king is holy. The king is full of grace. And the king is calling. So Isaiah has this vision, right? And he's in this throne room. And God is there on the throne. God is never described which is interesting. A lot of times when you, when you hear about the throne room of God, all these things are described, but God isn't himself. And there's these weird creatures, right? These seraphim, and they're flying all around, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And uh, in Hebrew, which is uh, what Isaiah, Isaiah originally wrote in, the word is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. And, and in Hebrew, there are no exclamation points, nor are there emoji, uh, sadly. <laughs> Uh, which makes me frowny face. And uh, so the way that you emphasize something in Hebrew is by repeating it. And if you really want to make an emphatic point, you say it three times. So here they're saying, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. The Lord is utterly holy. It is fundamental to who he is. He's holy. Uh, and that word holy uh, basically means that God is other, that he's separate. That he's different from us. Um, when someone comes upon God and he reveals himself to them, the first thing they always seem to, to remark on is that he is different. We have not beheld anything like this God before. We don't even have a category for this. I can't describe what's going on. Uh, it's literally blowing my mind. Um, and it's funny because people are often frustrated by the fact that God is invisible. This is a true fact about God. He's a spirit. He's invisible. Um, And they say, well, that's just proof that God doesn't exist. But according to the scripture, it's a really good thing that God is invisible. Because were we to see him, uh, we would literally be undone. Like it messes people up to see God. So Kadosh means that God is other. He's different. He's separate from us. He is not the same as us. But it also means that he's morally pure. God is righteous. He's holy. There's nothing wrong in him. There is no defect or sin. And he is the ultimate standard of what is right and what is wrong. He defines it. He invented the category right and wrong, good and evil, and he is pure. Uh, and so overwhelming is God's purity that these seraphim, right, there's these, they're, they're called the flaming ones. That's what that means. They're flying around, and they're not, they're not sinful like we are. They have no sin, yet they still cover up their faces and they cover up their feet in God's presence because they're shielding themselves uh, from God. Uh, The presence of God is overwhelming uh, and terrifying. Uh, Maybe you have been to the Grand Canyon or to Niagara Falls uh, and you have felt a little bit of that feeling of being next to something that is really, really massive and sort of overwhelming um, maybe if you've, fl- if you've gone on one of these character building trips to Africa um, and you've flown across the ocean at night, uh, this, was, this was my feeling when, when I flew over, it was dark, right? It was totally black and the stars, they're reflected on the ocean and you just had this feeling of being very, very, very small and overwhelmed by the blackness all around. Uh, and it's in those moments of feeling overwhelmed that we start to get a little taste, just like a glimmer, 
of what it's like to come into the presence of God. Uh, a preacher named Les Newsom, he puts it like this. When God's holiness hits you, you are so overwhelmed by it that you realize that you cannot trifle with him. You can't complain to him. You cannot argue with him. You cannot beat him. You cannot avoid him. You cannot ignore him. You cannot question him. The only life option for you is to literally fall into a puddle. And Isaiah gets that. Um, as the foundations are shaking, you know, he's in here, things feel like they're falling apart. There's all this smoke. Um, Isaiah cries out, and what does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Woe is me. Uh, and the word, we're doing a lot of vocabulary tonight. I'm sorry about that. You know, someone told me last week, one person, they said, I liked when you did the Greek. And now it's just like, messed me up. All right. So that word woe, while we're doing definitions, uh, doesn't just mean like, man, this is really bad. It's actually he's calling down a curse on himself. Uh, he is calling down doom on himself. He can't stand to be near God. And so he's actually like calling for the world to collapse and fall on him. He's cursing himself. Isaiah's realizing that he's a sinner. That when he's in God's presence, he does not deserve to be there. And the only thing that happens with a sinner when they stand in front of God is that they are destroyed, that they're judged. Uh, and it's really interesting, you know, like if you imagine that you were stood in front of God and you felt convicted of sin, like what would be the first thing you think that you would think of? Uh, maybe something big, maybe some kind of secret sin, uh, you know, maybe lying, pornography, uh, something like that. But Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. His speech is impure. Probably not the first thing that comes to your mind, uh, but it's a good reminder, right? Uh, the book of James says that the tongue is full of bitter poison, that it's set on fire from hell and goes spreading fires everywhere. Uh, when Isaiah sees God face to face, he no longer has any illusions about his sin. Even the thing that seems relatively insignificant has become catastrophic to him. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and, and kids and I took uh, my wife's sister up to Beacon Heights. Um, it's a great spot. If you haven't been to Beacon Heights, it's a pretty easy hike up there. But when we got to the top, it was kind of disappointing because it was real foggy. And so you get, and it's like you're just kind of standing on this rock, and it's just like fog. And it's like, well, I could have seen this from the ground. Um, but the sun peaked out after we were there for a couple of minutes. And you know how, like, when the sun comes out and there's fog, it kind of burns up the fog kind of quickly? And all of a sudden, the sun came out and burned up this fog. And all of a sudden, we could see for, like, miles. And we were, like, kind of holding our kids, like, closer, you know? Because they're like, oh, I don't feel quite so safe up here like I did before. When we come into the presence of God and we see his holiness, it does the same thing. It burns away those things that we think are important and reveals our true sin. Um, the more that we stand in God's presence and see his holiness, the more we realize we aren't safe in our sin. Uh, but thankfully, not only is our king holy, he's also full of grace. And these next few points won't be quite as lengthy as the first. Uh, while Isaiah is melting down, right? He's losing his mind, literally freaking out. Uh, one of these seraphim comes to him and he does something very strange. He takes a coal from the altar... 
And in verse 7, it says, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In God's throne room, there's an altar. And this isn't like where you go to get married. Uh, It is an altar where sacrifices are put on it. It's like a big grill. And there's, uh, there's wood on it, there's coals on it, and a sacrifice would be placed on there. The, the, the blood would be shed, it would be sprinkled on the altar, and this thing, this animal would be put on there and killed for sin. It would be consumed by fire for the express purpose of paying God for your sin. The altar is where one goes to get payment for their sin. Uh, and the animal that was on the altar in Israel uh, reminded people that they needed blood to pay for their sin. Uh, The blood of this bull or this goat uh, would never take away their sin, but it reminded them that blood had to be shed. And that sounds a little intense. Uh, And I get that. Um, But have you ever considered, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not yet a Christian, how serious your sin is? Uh, That God says that it requires a blood payment. The thing in you that gives you life, your blood, has to be shed to pay for sin. And they would come to the altar and offer this animal in their place. Something would come in their place. Because Hebrews chapter 9 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood must be shed for sin to be forgiven. Um, But of course, bulls and goats could never do that. They could never pay for a person's sin, right? That sounds silly. Uh, Of course not. But Hebrews 9 continues and talks about Jesus. He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ, not a bull or a goat, And we could make this extravagant. Not anything that you've done, any good work that you see that you've done can please God. Only the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, he who is fully God and fully man, can pay for sin. And this is the part in the text where it starts to get a little bit like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Um, Because John, in John chapter 12, says that the person that Isaiah is looking at is Jesus. He says that Isaiah beheld Jesus. So the one whose, whose blood can save is also the one sitting on the throne. Jesus is the king. The one that everyone is saying holy, holy, holy about is the one who has shed his own blood so that a coal could be taken off, a blood-splattered coal, and placed on Isaiah to forgive him of his sin. That is our king. The king that is terrifying, that makes you fall into a puddle, that makes you lose it. When you come into his presence, he's the one that also offered up himself for us. Jesus, the king, saved Isaiah from his sin. Jesus, the king, moved toward Isaiah. As Isaiah is in a heap on the ground, he comes to him and he initiates with him. Uh, Isaiah is saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And look what happens. So uh, the king is calling. The king is holy. The king is full of grace. And the king is calling. After he's touched with this coal, it says, your sins are atoned for. His sin is removed from him. Uh, and as if this hasn't been like a bad enough night for Isaiah, God asks for a volunteer to serve him. 
Uh, and his job is to go preach to Israel, and uh, no one's going to respond to you. Everyone's going to reject you. No one's going to listen to what you say. And at the end of it, they're probably going to kill you. That sounds like a terrible summer internship. Not even app students would sign up for this kind of summer internship. Uh, but Isaiah does. Uh, he immediately says, here am I, send me. How is it that someone goes from woe is me to here am I that quickly? Um, what now made Isaiah motivated and indeed qualified to serve God? What changed? Has Isaiah had a rapid life turnaround? Has he started living his life the right way? No. When Isaiah came into the, the presence of God and he saw his holiness, he realized how desperate he was in his sin and how much he needed God's grace to save him. Isaiah's story really is the first verse of Amazing Grace, if you know it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Isaiah's eyes were open, both about his own wretchedness and God's own holiness and grace towards him. And that changed Isaiah. Um, uh, when I was in, uh, in college... And then I, I became, became an REF intern, so as a plug, if you ever want to talk about the REF internship, like we were just talking about. Uh, and through that whole experience, I really struggled um, because uh, with feeling like I was called to the ministry. Um, I had a real sense that I was not as qualified, literally, as other people that I knew that were in uh, the ministry. I, wasn't, I was not as mature. I was not as polished. Um, I was not as knowledgeable about the Bible and theology as other people were. And so I just simply felt unqualified to do that. That's, this is for godly people. Um, and I was frustrated uh, because I knew I would never look the part. Uh, I would never have the external qualifications of the other men I knew that were better dressed, more knowledgeable about the Bible, seemed to always know what they were doing, seemed to always know the right thing to say. Um, and I just, I just knew that that wasn't me. And I knew that it, I, just, I took that to mean that I wasn't qualified. Um, but the Lord had to teach me the same lesson that he taught Isaiah. Uh, God calls people with unclean lips to serve him. Not just in ministry. Uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, God doesn't call us because we move towards him. Or because we cleaned up our lives. Uh, God calls people that are messed up. That have messed up lives. Uh, he calls people that aren't qualified in the eyes of men to do something because, as Paul says, my, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Uh, a recognition of your sin, a recognition of your lack of uh, things that you could offer to God is not a disqualification from serving God. It's not a disqualification from doing something big and bold for God. It's actually the qualification for serving God. Um, you will never be motivated to follow hard after God, to serve him in whatever job you go into in your dorm on this campus, until you start to understand your complete neediness before him of his grace. Um, you know, when Lance Armstrong and Tiger Woods, you know, we could say screwed up their lives, clearly. 
Um, one of the biggest things in the news was all their their endorsements dropping, you know? Because, like, no, like Nike or the U.S. Postal Service, well, that's really ironic, the U.S. Postal Service, but uh, Nike or Gatorade, you know, they don't want to endorse people that have a messed up life. It doesn't sell their product. Um, but God only endorses people that have a messed up life. Those are the only people he wants. The one qualification that God has for you to go out and do his work is do you feel that you need his grace? Do you understand that you can do nothing without him? Um, After what Paul says about God's power being made perfect in weakness, he says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, what are you dreaming about doing tonight? I'd love to sit down with you guys because, you know, it's like a lot of places I'm like, what's your major? And they say, and then I'm like, what are you going to do? They're like, ah. But you guys are always like, you know what would be really cool? To go to this place and do this thing. There's this place I heard about where there's people that are in need. They need justice. They need mercy. I want to serve people. Um, we talked about a couple options, you know, missions, RF internship, all this thing. I know some of you want to go to the mission field. Uh, I know some of you grew up on the mission field. Uh, I know some of you want to, you know, maybe think about the RUF internship. Some of you are studying social work. Um, some of you are studying international politics for the express purpose of helping people and bringing God's kingdom to bear in the world. And that's wonderful. Um, you know, some of you are doing medicine, counseling, politics, education. Um, but what do you think will make you effective at it? Like, what's going to... You know, when you think about, I want to be there and I want to, I want to touch people. What's going to make that happen? Um, what do the people you hope to impact need the most from you? When you get married, Lord willing, and you have kids, what do your children need from you? What do your classmates need from you? What does your roommate need from you? What does your boyfriend or girlfriend need from you? The greatest gift you can give any of those people is a tangible sense that you need God's grace. And it sounds so counterproductive. Uh, it sounds so kind of, you know, like, I know you have a non-Christian friend and you want to live a life that just shows them like, it's really happy to be a Christian and have a lot of joy and my life is cleaned up. But like, maybe they need you to repent to them for something that you did. Uh, maybe they need to see you asking forgiveness. Maybe that will change them. People need to see us modeling our absolute dependence on Jesus, and because God says that's true power. Do you know that power? Are you qualified? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that you qualify us um, to serve you, not because we bring anything to the table. We bring our messed up, broken lives, our impure lips, our impure thoughts. Lord, our dirty hands, our checkered paths to you. And your power is made perfect in that weakness. And Lord, for that we give you thanks. Um, Lord, would you call us uh, to a place in the world? Lord, give us something to do that we might tell others, Lord, that we once were lost, but have been found by you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.